It is Thursday, December 14th, 2023. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, the U.S. Postal Service is looking to move its processing and distribution center out of Fayetteville. There's a lot of unanswered questions. How it's going to affect delivery times, mail related to the elections. Uh, There's a lot of different things that county government depends on the Postal Service for. And so there's a lot of concerns about how this is going to impact us, how it's going to impact the community. And the new look naturals. A lot of times we spend trying to appeal almost to like maybe the non-baseball fan, because if you do love baseball or the Royals, it's for you. But if you're not... You can still come and have a great time relaxing, or if you love fireworks or your kids love the train. So it's just trying to figure out all those different ways to make it inviting. Plus, the latest Northwest Arkansas Business Journal reports. Before all that, this hour's news. KUAF is supported by Arkansas Community Foundation, working with professional advisors to offer clients philanthropic investment opportunities to match their needs. Whether it's tax-related, retirement planning, or creating a legacy of giving, more at arcf.org. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art invites art enthusiasts to register for Printmaking with Paige Dirksen, an eight-week workshop designed for folks age 55-plus who wish to learn about different forms of printmaking and hone their skills creating unique prints. Classes take place Mondays, January 22nd through March 11th. Information and tickets at crystalbridges.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, December 14th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks so much for being with us today. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later on today's show, a conversation with Muriel Gaither, the founder and CEO of a company designed to help book hunting and fishing trips across the U.S. She speaks with Paul Gatling in this week's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. That's in about 15 minutes. First up, the United States Postal Service is looking to move one of its processing and distribution centers out of northwest Arkansas and transfer services to Oklahoma City. The plan was laid out at a public input session in Fayetteville last week. Ozarks at Large's Janica Ruth reports. A steady stream of people file into a sunny event room in the Fayetteville Public Library in early December as representatives from the United States Postal Service direct attendees to fill out a sign-in sheet. The audience of close to 60 people, some still in their postal uniforms, settle in as the presentation begins. The public input session hosted by USPS is to explain the plan to revamp the region's mail distribution and processing center located in South Fayetteville and transfer some of those services to Oklahoma City. According to USPS, the move would cost the center at least 12 staff and one management position that would have to relocate. However, Juwan Jones, facilities director for the Postal Service, insisted during his presentation that the facility in Fayetteville was not closing. The facility is not closing. It will be repositioned as a local processing center. At point two, there will be no career employees layoffs as a part of this initiative. 
The presentation, which lasted about 15 minutes, explained that the current facility would become a local processing center. The decision, according to a press release from the Postal Service, is a result of a feasibility study that they conducted to cut costs for the agency as part of a 10-year strategic Delivering for America plan. Kaylin Mills is the vice president of the Northwest Arkansas Area American Postal Workers Union. She also works at the processing center in Fayetteville and says reforms presented by the Postal Service are not the full picture. If we get accessed out, we can be sent anywhere within 50 miles. Fort Smith's within 50 miles of our plant. So I could be looking at having to drive back and forth to Fort Smith every single day and not get paid that gas money. So I'm losing more money out of my paycheck and getting put into a craft that's not the one I signed up for. And, you know, that's frustrating. But on a more public scale, it would affect the delivery time. That's the biggest thing. And and it would all be going to Oklahoma City, which is an eight-hour round trip. She says the reform would now route local mail through the Oklahoma City plant some 220 miles away. The Postal Service says the delivery time would not be disrupted. Evelyn Rio Stafford is a Washington County Justice of the Peace and spoke out against the move today. And she says that logic from USPS just doesn't hold up. Well, there's a lot of unanswered questions, especially how this is going to affect mail service, how it's going to affect delivery times. Uh, You know, as a representative for the county, uh, there's a lot of mail that we send out uh, that's very time sensitive. For example, jury summons uh, or, uh, you know, people learning about their court dates uh, and things like that. Um, uh, Election mail related to the elections. Uh, There's a lot of different things that county government depends on the Postal Service for. And so there's a lot of concerns about how this is going to impact us, how it's going to impact the community. Wynonna Clazer works for a gas and utilities company in the area and also voiced her concerns about the restructuring. She says the decision doesn't take into account all of the people who depend on mail service. Uh, Every day I talk to customers that mail in their checks and that receive their bills by mail. Um, And uh, a lot of them are on fixed incomes, they're older, maybe they don't even have enough money to have really internet except for maybe on their phone, and they don't even necessarily know how to use it. And so I feel like I felt compelled to come out and say something on behalf of my people that I speak with every day. Um, because I find it absolutely ridiculous that even just locally, things like this are happening in communities all over the place. Um, And I'm already seeing problems with it with customers already. And mail's delayed. And, you know, two or three weeks, their services are getting cut off. They have no way to get you know, get the information to us. Maybe they don't have some place in their area that they can go to make the payment or something. Um, In total, 27 people spoke against the decision to move service from the Fayetteville plant. All of them expressed dismay at the lack of information. The Postal Service did not take questions from the public and at the timing of the meeting. Here's Kaylin Mills again. We didn't find out about that until three weeks ago. 
contractionally they're supposed to give us more time than that and they're also supposed to make the time of the meeting in the evening for that more of the public can show up instead of at 3 p.m. when they're picking up their kids from school or still at work and uh, they unfortunately did not follow that so we're definitely making sure we're filing grievances on that as well. Bob Stafford is a Fayetteville City Council member for Ward 1 and says the city didn't know about the meeting either. He didn't even hear about it until he watched the news. I was just talking to somebody else and we all feel a little blindsided. So it doesn't seem like there was adequate notice or it would have been nice if we were part of the process and not just being notified of it last minute, uh, you know, at the 11th hour. He says the council is working on a resolution to oppose the proposed move and says a change like this would have ripple effects in the local economy. Um, it's, about the, it's about the postal workers, it's about the jobs we may lose, and it's not just their jobs, it's, well, those postal workers go out to lunch. Uh, those postal workers shop in our local businesses. Um, there's also ancillary businesses. There's a uh, Mailco, uh, Arkansas Mail, uh, different businesses that rely on that distribution center. How's it going to affect them? How's it going to affect my marketing business? So, uh, so many unanswered questions. Uh, very last minute notification on this, but it's great to see how many people showed up to speak up about it. Uh, how much bipartisan support there is a, against this move. And I think if we if we raise our voices, maybe we can get some action on it. And Kaylin Mills says this is the latest in a string of closures from the USPS across the country. And she believes the information provided by the Postal Service was deliberately vague and did not align with what she says postal employees have been told. It's really frustrating because I feel like in their presentation they gave today, they used a bunch of words that only postal employees would understand, not the everyday public, you know, my... 85-year-old grandmother, she's not going to know what any of that means. And so I feel like they did a very poor job in explaining their case. And they also did a really poor job in actually giving you the real facts. By giving you quotes saying that only 12 jobs are going to be affected, we know for a fact that's not what we're being told. We're being told it's going to be a lot more than that. And so it's frustrating to see that they're thinking that they're going to be able to just say what they want and the public's supposed to just believe it. A representative from USPS declined to comment on the record for this report, but said in an official written statement that the move would save at least $2.5 million a year once the change is implemented, with $1.6 million of that in transportation costs, with, quote, minimal disruption to customer service. Mills says she disagrees with that estimate and hopes other people will dig further into those statements. So I just hope that the public goes and talks to their carrier or their window clerk and sees how they feel about it and how it's going to impact them and get their perspective on how it could impact that customer or that business. 
Um, since last week, I've been on the phone making phone calls to all the surrounding towns, mayors and chamber of commerce and all local businesses like Onyx Coffee, for example. They deliver a lot of mail through our plant. And so I've been making sure that they understand from our perspective of what is actually going to be happening, not what the national management on the postal side is portraying is going to be happening. The Fayetteville Processing Center employs more than 90 clerks, 50 mail carriers, 30 maintenance workers, and at least 10 supervisors. USPS did not set out a timeline for when the changes to Fayetteville's distribution center would occur, but they are taking public comments on the proposal through December 21st. A link to the online survey is available on our website. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Ahead on Ozarks at Large, the Northwest Arkansas Naturals have updated their logos. But did they consider updating the mascot, too? We definitely thought about it. I mean, the number two name was Thunder Chickens when the name the team came about. And again, I wasn't here, but I was kept in tune. I kind of knew where we were going with everything and the results we were getting. That's in the second half hour of today's show. The KUAF Giving Tree, now for over a decade, working to provide necessary items and support for our area nonprofits, is teaming up with the Yvonne Richardson Center. The YRCC is committed to shaping today's youth for tomorrow's challenges by providing recreational, educational, and social opportunities. Here's Josh Lane Fiesta with the YRCC. Started in 96 when the building opened up. Had a lot of sports programs in there, a lot of after-school programs there, and it's been growing throughout the years, and in about early 2000s, it uh, flipped over with the Parks and Rec Department. So we've been partnering together, the city and the nonprofit board, which is called the Friends of the YRCC, and we work together to enrich the community. The center is always needing prepackaged snacks, sports equipment, coloring and activity books, and more. To find out how you can help, visit KUAF.com slash giving treat. Again, that's KUAF.com slash giving treat. Your voice matters. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. The city of Fayetteville is one of 385 projects awarded with a Safer Streets for All grant courtesy of the U.S. Department of Transportation. More than $800 million in grants nationwide have been awarded as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law to cities, counties, and regions to provide safer streets for cyclists and pedestrians. Mitch Landrew is the mayor of New Orleans, as well as senior advisor to President Biden and White House Infrastructure Implementation Coordinator. He says one of the goals of this project is as simple as building safer roadways for everyone, not just people in cars. To make it easier for people to get to school, to work, uh, to get connected with one another, and to make sure that we try to build back uh, in a very, very safe way to prevent injury, Uh, and to prevent prevent death. Unfortunately, too many of us know firsthand the pain of losing uh, a loved one in a crash. Uh, Roadway safety, of course, is personal to the president, uh, as you know. So this is something that is near and dear to his heart. Deputy Secretary of Transportation Polly Trottenberg says one of the things she is most proud of with this investment is that these are plans that come directly from local communities. Cities, towns, counties, tribal areas, telling us the solutions that work best for them. I previously served as transportation commissioner in New York City, 
where we implemented Vision Zero roadway safety. And I know firsthand how important it is to design and implement these projects with input from local residents, local businesses, safety advocates, and other stakeholders. There's no one size fits all solution. And a lot of the most creative ideas come from people who live and work in the local community. They're, they're not dictated by us here in Washington. The city of Fayetteville is the recipient of $25 million to help fund a project much like the one Trottenberg just talked about, accelerating change toward Vision Zero. Fayetteville has adopted the goal of eliminating traffic deaths and serious injuries by the year 2030. The funding will be implemented over five major capital improvement projects on high injury corridors paired with a community-wide education and awareness program. This will include implementing proven safety countermeasures, such as improved lighting and corridor access management, appropriate speed limits, roundabout installation, dedicated left and right turn lanes at intersections, and more. The plan also includes measures to protect vulnerable road users, such as pedestrians and cyclists. The Department of Transportation expects nearly half of this funding to be used in underserved communities in Fayetteville, supporting equitable investment. The federal government is considering new ways to respond to natural disasters. During a congressional hearing on Tuesday, Arkansas Republican U.S. Senator John Bozeman raised concerns about the federal government's response time to disasters. Bozeman said he has been hearing from local officials that the process to get resources in the aftermath of disaster can be a challenge. In some cases, we're talking about spending more money, but but so much of this is just being more efficient and making the process work. I'm the ranking member on agriculture, and we see this with the the relief programs there. Uh, you know, it's it's difficult to uh, to uh, go through the process, and then you wait two years, you know, before you actually get any relief. By that time, it's 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 more than difficult. Earlier this year, Bozeman introduced legislation, which had bipartisan support, that would have created an office within the Economic Development Administration to respond to requests for aid in the aftermath of natural disasters. In a press release, Bozeman said this would help expedite the process and get resources to communities faster. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. Coming up today, a visit with entrepreneur Muriel Gaither. She is the founder and chief executive of Vinku. That's a software platform that helps people book hunting and fishing trips across the country. The company's origins are in Missouri, but Gaither relocated the business to northwest Arkansas this past year to plug into the region's growing network of angel investors. Plus, details of a company expansion in Springdale and a date to put on your calendar for what is always one of the year's largest business gatherings. That's all ahead after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. More at ArkansasStateChamber.com. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. 
First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas, and it shows in your banking experience. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. That's because First Security is 100% focused on serving customers all across the state and nowhere else. It's local banking with local commitment. First Security. Bank better. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Muriel Gaither is the CEO and founder of Vincu. That's a software startup that helps people list, discover, and book outdoor experiences, including guided, self-guided, and all-inclusive hunting and fishing trips, eco-tours, wilderness camping, and nature getaways, which all told is about a $27 billion a year industry. Gaither said she started Vincu after her own challenges with offering recreation access on a family farm in central Missouri. By connecting with the right client, her family made three times as much income from the same property versus previous years. She realized that outdoor experience providers everywhere were missing out on revenue by not leveraging an online presence. And on the flip side, users were having a difficult time connecting to outdoor experiences they were looking for and without all the hassle. Vinku launched four years ago, but within the past year, Gaither relocated the company to northwest Arkansas to plug into the region's growing reputation as the place to be to start and scale businesses in the outdoor recreation space. Gaither and other Vinku leaders hosted an invitation-only angel investor breakfast earlier this week at the Collaborative in Bentonville. And that's where I caught up with her for a quick conversation. At Vincu, we help people book hunting and fishing trips online. You can find the website at www.vencu.com. On the one side, we help connect people with the thousands of guided and self-guided hunting, fishing, and outdoor experiences that are available all across the U.S. On the other side, we actually equip guides, outfitters, and private landowners with the tools that they need to be able to reach an active audience that's looking for their experiences and monetize their trips. So what is the origin story of that idea? How did you come up with this? When did you come up with it? And then what are the circumstances that led you and your company to Northwest Arkansas? Absolutely. So the origin story goes back to a family farm property that my family has in the Missouri Ozarks. And we were grappling with some of the different ways that we could actually share the experiences at our property and the outdoor recreation access with others. Um, And this was back in about 2016, 2017. We were all sitting around the table at a family meeting and, and that idea came up. And so at that time I thought, well, that can't be that difficult. Surely there's already a solution out there for that where I can just plug these experiences in and we can start you know, getting bookings. But the reality is that that solution, while it existed in the short-term rental space and across some of the other industries, did not yet exist in private land and outdoor recreation access. So from there, I thought, well, that can't be that hard. So let's go ahead and do this. And um, started working on the project full-time in 2017 and officially entered the market in 2020 with Vancouver um, in the height of the pandemic. 
and from there um, we've just increased growth every year we've brought on new hosts and um, have continued to expand our offering for for customers and so now you're here in northwest arkansas what why did you feel like you needed to be here to scale the company and what are the resources that you found here in the entrepreneurial ecosystem the outdoor recreation the outdoor focused ecosystem that have really impacted your company the most Absolutely. Northwest Arkansas is becoming a mecca for outdoor recreation. Uh, we were incredibly impressed with all of the initiatives, all the way from the kind of local, localized and regional level to the state level as far as outdoor recreation goes. Um, there's some really incredible things happening, such as the Natural State Council, um, the Office of Outdoor Re Recreation that was established last year, headed by Catherine Andrews. She's doing a fantastic job. Um, but just at every step of the way, we have felt very supported and really excited um, just about all of the positive momentum that's happening for outdoor outdoor recreation. Uh, Phil Shellhammer with GORP was um, you know, really exciting for us to see that, that that track was being established for outdoor recreation at the U of A and that that program, um, the GORP incubator, was also being created um, because for us what that meant is that you know, there was a community and an ecosystem here for founders and entrepreneurs in this space being developed and absolutely was some place that we wanted to be. You mentioned positive momentum. We're going into 2024. What does that look like for your company? What are your major two or three goals that you that you expect to accomplish that year? What are you focused on in terms of your uh, scaling of the company? Absolutely. We want to build out our team. So if you or anybody that you know has an interest in hunting or fishing trips and uh, basically just likes to talk about that all day, please look us up and let me know because we always want really um, fantastic and knowledgeable individuals to join our team. We're also looking to double booking revenue and volume across the platform. So what that means is and how you can help with that is by encouraging folks to book experiences and book trips through Vencu. We have over 4,000 ready-to-be-booked packages on Vencu that span all the way from camping or glamping trips to, um, to multi-day immersive experiences in the wilderness for fishing or hunting. So please take a look and uh, get in contact with us yeah. if there's something you're looking for and you don't see it because chances right. are we probably know how to get it for you. Yeah. What are some context about just where are your users? Where are your hosts? This is, is this is a national platform, I'm assuming. That's correct. National and even some international presence. We have hosts into Canada and then all the way into South America and starting to add in South Africa as well. Um, and as far as our user base, it is equally as distributed. Um, what we discovered is that folks don't want to hunt a Missouri deer who live in Missouri. <laughs> they want to go down to Louisiana and have a gator hunting experience, right. or they want to go up to South Dakota and pheasant hunt. So um, we found the same thing, you know, across the board with the, the users who are utilizing Vencu. Um, they are equally distributed all across the U.S. Vencu, if you are wondering, is a Czechoslovakian word that means outdoors or outside. You can learn more about the company at their website at vincu.com. That's V-E-N-K-U.com. In other news this week, Premium Brands of Northwest Arkansas, that's an alcohol and beverage distributor in Fayetteville, says it will build a new headquarters in Springdale. The company says it will start construction sometime next year on a 130,000 square foot building on 20 acres north of Kendrick Avenue in the northeast part of the city. Premium Brands employs approximately 100 people. 
A panel of three economists will provide regional, national, and global forecasts at the 30th Annual Business Forecast Luncheon in Rogers next month. The Center for Business and Economic Research in the Sam M. Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas will host the event on January 26th at the Rogers Convention Center. And the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust announced a 130-acre easement in southern Washington County this week. Breeze Bluffs is the Land Trust's 44th protected property and takes the total acreage protected by the group to approximately 7,500. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals recently unveiled a revamped logo package and color scheme in preparation for the 2024 season. The AA minor league affiliate of the Kansas City Royals are updating their branding for the first time since the inaugural design in 2007. Justin Cole is the vice president and general manager for the Naturals, who has been with the team since they were located in Wichita. Justin says, when it came time to reveal the new Naturals logo, it was important to him that they keep the good brand and reputation that they had earned here in Northwest Arkansas. I think we're well known. I think there's a good affinity. So it was important to us not to lose that. And we'd spent all those years since the summer of 07 until now building up that affinity. So it was important to take the next step, but don't lose your connector. Um, And that was kind of the through line as we started this to where we ended up. Talk a little bit more about what you mean by like losing that connector. Like what was, what was something that could have put that at risk maybe? I mean, we talked a little bit initially of, do we do a total rebrand? Do we change the team name? Do we change the colors, the crests, the hats, everything? And, you know, the more we talked internally with ownership, with some of our, you know, stakeholders, basically, I think we just found that, sure, you could do that. Do we want to reintroduce this franchise or we just want to chart the next you know, 15, 20 years? And that's what we really settled on. And I also think when we looked at this area, you know, all the high schools and University of Arkansas, that tradition is, is important. And we feel like, you know, we may have moved here in 07, but we want that tradition to be important for our fans and our ballpark and our team as well. Well, let's talk now. We've got the we've got the new rebranding that's happened, uh, and it looks super, super sharp. I love the color scheme. I love the design of it. What did it look like to go from a design that was made in 06, 07 to now? What kind of thought process went into modernizing it, but not making it seem too much like of the moment, if that makes sense? hundred percent. I think when we when we embarked on it, again, you're talking 2007, you know, yeah, you have the internet, you have social media, but not to the level you have now. Same with merchandise and prevalence of merchandise and online availability of merchandise and what teams can do with uniforms. All those innovations have continued to happen over the years. And what we noticed was we didn't quite have the versatility we wanted to have. So that was one of the key things. How can we be more versatile with our look? And then a little more vibrant. Um, again, I really enjoy our old logos, I guess they are now, our <laughs> old uniforms. Um, but th- those were kind of the two things we were looking at is how can we be a little more vibrant and be a little bit more versatile? 
So when we kind of settled on, we don't want to change the name. Those were the two things we kind of kept coming back to. And we talked internally and got a lot of great feedback from staff, some of whom have been with the team as long as I have, as well as some have just been with us a year or two. It was important to kind of get all those viewpoints. We settled on an agency, um, Torch Creative. They worked with the team in our league in Midland, and they produced a very similar result for them. Midland is the Midland Rockhounds. They had had that identity since early 2000s, about 20 years they had a more of a cartoony brand and they were looking for a more modern sleek, but not lose the connection to the Midland Rockhounds. And when I saw what they did for Midland, it was in 2021. I, I really loved it. And I kind of just kept that in the back of my mind. And when we solicited proposals, we wanted to get one from them. And when we did and we met with them, their vision was the same. They could tell, I could just tell we were kind of vibing on like, we want what you did for them, for us. And, this, and it was a lot easier start point with them. When you think about the color scheme, so we've got, uh, and you can correct me on the more particular colors of the colors, but we've got the red and the yellow and the blue. What led to the decision to move towards that color scheme and that color palette? Yeah, I mean, we primarily had the the navy and the darker red, um, and we had a yellow accent, but it was a darker yellow. We really didn't use it a lot in our in our color palette. It was very much a small accent, and there was a very minor light blue accent. And we did wear a light blue jersey for a couple of years, but the majority of our stuff you're seeing is the dark red um, and the dark uh, blue. We kind of, for that reason, I also took a look around our league, around minor league baseball, also like what are our fans interacting with, and also looked at our big league affiliate, the Kansas City Royals. You know, they're royal blue, obviously, and then they also have the gold, and that's really the two colors, and they do the baby blues. So it was like, how do you work between all that? And I looked, and you know, there aren't a lot of teams in our league that have a, a yellow accent. We knew we could easily brighten that up, soften the blue and the red a little bit. And in general, again, just it brightened everything up. And then when we started to see the concepts of what the logo could look like, um, seeing that color then put into it, it was it was literally an eye-opener of like, wow, this, this could really be what we're hoping to see. And I can't wait. You know, we've had a lot of good feedback, but I know some people are like, oh, the, the hats are great. The jerseys are a little... I can't wait till people can see those on the field. Mm. I think that's such a big difference than seeing them on a mannequin in the community room. Oh, for sure. And I, I do think it's going to tie it all together really well. And that brightness and that vibrancy is really going to show through when you kind of put that whole uniform together on a professional athlete, not on a mannequin. One of the things, you know, you were talking about kind of keeping that tradition of that name. We've seen this move in minor league baseball to move towards more um, unique, I'll use that word, unique mascots where we've got the sod poodles and Amarillo. Was there any sort of thought that maybe we should toy around with kind of moving in that direction too? Because I know for clubs like Amarillo that that's certainly a, a good seller of merchandise, right? There's a, it may be like an advanced league, but there's a league, uh, there's a team out in the Rocky Mountains, it's called the Rocky Mountain Vibes, and their hat logo is a s'mores, like like a, like a like a hippie looking s'mores guy. Does that sort of thing cross your mind when you're thinking about, well, if we're going to go out, should we try to go all out? We definitely thought about it. I mean, the number two name was Thunder Chickens when the name of the team came about. And again, I wasn't here, but I was kept in tune. I kind of knew where we were going with everything and the results we were getting. So for a couple of years, we did that as a theme weekend. We've done Growling Chickens the last few years, had great results. That's a lot of fun. That's kind of our little bit of an homage to what you're talking to. But also initially when we did our brainstorm with our staff and then with our agency, you know, we kind of had some very specific things, you know, you know, homage to our state, our region, our team name, you know, our motto, our, our, our beliefs, our values as an organization. And then we were like, you know, we really don't want to 
we do growling chickens. We don't want anything with a chicken. You know, we don't want anything with that. Even though it is synonymous, Springdale and the history of our city that we're in and the region that we that we operate in, they came back to us with a few concepts. And our BP cap does have a a, a rooster, a, a chicken logo on there, and it was just too cool to pass up. So I think like that's kind of our maybe half measure of of having that be part of the brand without changing our name. And I do think over time you will see that into our uniform concepts. Um, you will see it a little bit more in our team store. Right now, we strictly kept it to the batting practice cap. So the team will be issued those. They'll wear them during BP. We'll sell those in the team shop. Um, but I do think that's kind of our way to still be the naturals, still kind of have some of that traditional, still fun branding, but also kind of have that as a little bit of an offshoot for us. When you work in a minor league baseball club, I imagine it's got to be a little odd that you don't really have control of your roster, right? That that the major league team kind of chooses who is and isn't there. As you're thinking about putting on these 69 events a year at RVS Ballpark, how do you find that line between making sure it's entertaining for folks and also like making sure that the players are developing the way that they're supposed to? Because at the end of the day, that's what the Kansas City Royals want from the Nationals. They want to make sure that the prospects that they've drafted or that they've signed are going to turn into the best baseball players that they can. How do you toe that line? Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, it's that is the reason for the existence of the minor leagues. You know, it's a it's a very unique system. You know, every every sport has their feeder system for getting folks from the you know, little kids all the way to the, the majors and whatever it may be. Baseball is unique in that, you know, you can get drafted and pass through six or seven different levels of baseball until you reach the major leagues. But you're a professional the entire time. You're signed to a contract, you're earning money, and you are applying your trade trying to get to the big leagues. For us, it really comes down to managing both sides of it, you know, having a good relationship with your affiliate, making the ballpark for the player development side. And we've done some improvements um, working with our major league partners on that to give them the best environment to develop their skills. And then from the other side of it, it's we have 69 events starting next year as April 5th is opening day. Looking at our history, what have people been responding to? The other thing I love is between the 120 other, 119 other minor league teams and then every major league team, you have your own kind of idea incubator, and that's just within baseball. I mean, you can still see what are, what are the college teams doing, what is the NBA, NFL, and you just try to grab and see what can we mix into our, our event portfolio, what do we maybe need to subtract, and it's that balance of fan values, entertainment. Um, a lot of times we spend – trying to appeal almost to like maybe the non-baseball fan because if you do love baseball or the Royals it's for you. Yeah, you're going to come. <laughs> you're going to see some top level athletes. But if you're not, you can still come and have a great time relaxing or if you love fireworks or your kids love the train. So it's just trying to figure out all those different ways to make it inviting whether you love baseball or are indifferent to baseball. Yeah, I feel like it, it tends to be there's one person who loves going to baseball games and goes for the baseball, and then you've got that partner who is there because you've got pretty good drink deals on a Thursday night, or the nachos are actually pretty inexpensive. And so I imagine a lot of that is built around how do I make sure that the person who doesn't love baseball as much as the other still wants to continue coming? Yeah, it's it's a big key, and it's from what's the promotion that going on that night, as well as what are we doing in park, you know, a staple of minor league baseball is that in-between innings entertainment, involvement of fans and your pregame ceremonies and your in-game ceremonies. 
um, giving away things as people exit. And we work with a lot of great sponsors on that. It adds value to the, hopefully their business, but also adds value to that fan experience. You get to come to a game. Maybe you won a prize. You get to see some great fireworks. And when you leave, you get a free item from one of our sponsors. You just try to tie all those things together. Um, and again, we try to make every event as unique as we can. And that's, that's really what we set out. And we have a meeting this afternoon and it's the same thing, you know, going back through our schedule, you know, what's the top line event? And then what's the secondary event? And then, then we talk about what's the experience when you're in the park? You know, what are we doing for the first inning break, second inning break? Um, and it's a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's one of the things I enjoy is that the overall structure is the same, but every season is different. And really when you break it down, every event is, is going to be different. Every time you open the gates, hopefully something new or fun's going to happen. Does it make it easier for people to come to games if the team's good? It's definitely helpful. Um, I think that's another thing that minor league baseball is kind of unique. I think a good comparison is with the Razorbacks. By by no means could you you can go, they could lose. You can still have a great time, but you want them to win. I mean, especially when you get in conference play, you know. And I've gone to some of those games, and man, it is so much fun. It's it's like playoff baseball during the regular season, and you can't replicate that. That's an environment that is unique with us. That competitive nature is on the field. These guys want to develop. They want to win. They want to get to the major leagues. But it's more about their development. It is wins and losses do matter. They count. We can make the playoffs. We've won two championships. You almost look at it from the perspective of a lot of times people ask who are the top prospects. And that's what we we spend a lot of our time talking about. But I also like some of the other stories that you see, you know, guys who did not sign for a lot of money, who've earned their way. We had a guy make his way through every level this year in the Royal System, a pitcher. And it's just that kind of stuff that I really enjoy um, getting to see year in and year out. And I think when we kind of talk through that aspect, it is um, our games are hopefully about that entire experience. And whether we win or lose, we hope you had a good time. We hope you want to come back and see it again. And if we won every night, I think it would help. But we've had years where our team isn't that good, and we still draw out really well. And I think it's it's really just going back to what, what I kind of mentioned is you, that experience has to be good, and that way it'll maybe soften the blow if we don't take home the W that night. Justin, is there anything I missed or anything you want to make sure we touch on when we uh, we can kind of run back around to the logo? I mean, that was kind of the, the initial idea of the conversation yeah. here, um, you know, is there anything about that process that surprised you? This is, you know, you were involved in some capacity in the first logo. Is there anything that surprised you when you think about the second iteration of it and, and you know, hopefully the longevity of it? What was fun to do was look back at the initial sketches we got. Um, the, the two guys that designed this for us came up and met us. It was in the summer of 2021. Uh, they spent probably two or three hours with our staff, uh, with myself. They were came to a game that night, walked around the park, notes, pictures. The next day, they just drove around the area. We gave them a little bit of direction, but purposefully not a lot. And I think it was probably three weeks later seeing those. I had not gone back and looked at those sketches in a while and kind of got through the unveil. And then that night, I went back and looked at their, I think it was 45-page of just sketch, and they were hand sketches. That was that was kind of neat to see where we really did start to where we ended up. Um, and I was I was pretty proud of that. And I, again, I hope people like it. Even if you don't, I hope you still want to come see it and see us play at, at our best ballpark. Uh, .com, um has all the info on our upcoming season. It has some information on the process um, behind all this, as well as uh, it'll continue to have information about next season. And we open up April 5th, which is, uh, it's going to be here quick. <laughs> Justin Cole, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you.
Leslie Uribe, Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with River Mellows. River Melody, a piece by award-winning composer from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Andrea Clearfield. River Melos was originally commissioned by and dedicated to Denise Tyrone, fourth horn in the Philadelphia Orchestra. Clearfield also arranged the work for trombone and piano for Ava Ortman, the version we're listening to today. River Melos is inspired by the Roaring Fork River in Aspen, Colorado, where Andrea Clearfield spent many summers as a music festival student. As described by the composer, quote, the river changes size and energy from powerful white waters into peaceful streams and deep pools through canyons and into lakes. In River Mellows, a melody winds through the smooth and rocky places, like the river, like the journey of our lives, eventually finding a spacious resting place. End quote. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine yourself sitting by the banks of a river, the sun casting a warm golden glow over the water, sometimes tranquil, other times convoluted. As you listen to the sounds of the music, let your mind wander and become one with the scene. Thank <laughs> you. 
That was an excerpt from River Melos by composer from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Andrew Clearfield. Originally a piece for horn, this version arranged by the composer for trombone and piano was performed by Eva Ortman and Derek Kelly Polishuk. Wasser Clavier, Water Piano, is a composition by Italian composer Luciano Berrio. Berio is known for his experimental, enthusiastic, creative, and versatile music, which was also influential in the genesis of many new 20th century ideas and techniques. Luciano Berio was constantly engaged with tradition, and in this piece, he references music from the past, namely Brahms and Schubert. Water piano is quiet, reminiscent of dripping water, calm and tender. was Luciano Berrio's water piano in the hands of pianist Helene Grimaud from her 2016 Deutsche Grammophon album, Water. Today in Sound Perimeter, we listen to the sounds of rivers and water, an invitation to tranquility and a reminder of nature's force and rhythm. These sounds weave a narrative of life continuity, a constant flow that mirrors the passage of time and the enduring vitality of the natural world. Find more about our composers and performers in the show notes. Sound Perimeter is a show written and hosted by me and produced by Sofia Nurani, KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. This segment is dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. I'll see you soon.
tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Tina, the Tina Turner musical, is currently at the Walton Arts Center in Fayetteville. The production features four different actors performing the role of the legendary artist, including two children. If you never heard of, like, dancing in water, like, you could go underwater, like, there's dancer water, like, water, dancers that go in water and dance, and, like, just to know that that's th- th- a thing, it's cool because, like, it's, like, so lyrical, and, like, you can move your body any way you want, and you could express express your feelings, and same with singing, I could sing, I could have fun, and that's what I really love. More of that conversation tomorrow, plus a roundup of the week's news with Michael Tilley of Talk Business and Politics, weekend plans with Becca Martin-Brown of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and a review of Wonka from Courtney Lanning. Listen at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF Public Radio and at 7 p.m. on Little Rock Public Radio. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors to today's show included Daniel Carruth, Paul Gatling, and Leah Rebe. Additional help from the news team at Little Rock Public Radio. Today's show was produced in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. You can find stories from Ozarks at Large past and present, plus a link to subscribe to the free Ozarks at Large newsletter. It lands in your email inbox every weekday morning with the most recent stories and much more. All of that at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Matthew Moore. Thank you so much for being with me today. Kyle Kellums will be back with me tomorrow. And, of course, Ozarks at Large weekend, Ozarks at Large on Sunday at 9 a.m. here in northwest Arkansas. Until then, thanks so much for being with me. Be well. The Walmart Amp presents Canadian singer-songwriter Sarah McLaughlin Tuesday, July 2nd, touring in celebration of the 30th anniversary of her third studio album, Fumbling Towards Ecstasy, performing the full record front to back. She'll be joined on tour by special guest Feist. Tickets and information at amptickets.com.